Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Hope you're having a great summer of 2017, that you're staying cool in the midst of the hot weather, wherever you may be. And I appreciate you listening to Understanding Christianity today. I've had listeners ask me if I'm going to address an issue that happened a few weeks ago at the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, the Southern Baptist Convention was in Phoenix, Arizona, and the Connect 316 banquet was held on June 13th in conjunction with the annual meeting. And as you all know, the Connect 316 is the, the flagship organization or movement to promote the traditionalist theology and the traditionalist movement, the traditional Southern Baptists. Uh, people like Rick Patrick and Leighton Flowers and Eric Hankins in particular. The keynote speaker was Eric Hankins, who is the author of the traditional statement that came out about five years ago. And so they asked him to come back and speak as far as the history of how the traditional statement came about and what are some next steps. And so you can go to sbctoday.com and you can get a transcript of his lecture, of his speech. So I'm going to interact with that. Also, Leighton Flowers has done a YouTube and a Soteriology 101 podcast interviewing Eric Hankins. Um, I did not interact with the, the audio clips because I did not feel like there was anything that was added to the discussion there uh, that was really different from the text. And so I'm going to stick with the text and writing, which is that's been promulgated. Uh, that's really what is being advanced. And so I'm not going to read the entire thing, obviously, but I, I do want to interact with it because I've been asked um, what, what my thoughts are. And so I've, I've taken some time to think this through, to process it. I've gone to some Facebook groups to see what other people are, are saying. Obviously, Founders, the Founders Movement on the Founders blog is, has weighed in on this. SBC Voices has weighed in on this. So a lot of people have weighed in. But since I am a podcaster who interacts with traditional Southern Baptists, I think I need to weigh into the mix because I think that's what my listeners are expecting. So I want to do this with gentleness and respect. I want to interact and engage. And so let me just begin by saying that, and I've said this before on, on, on previous podcasts, I have no problems with the traditional Southern Baptists as far as men and women of God. They have every right to come up with their own statement of faith. They have every right to connect together in the Connect 316, to, to, to have blogs, to have literature, to promote their theology, to be in the Southern Baptist Convention. I think we have a big enough tent. I think we've always had Calvinists. We've always had somewhat of Arminians, not a lot, and traditional Southern Baptists all coexisting for the past few um, centuries, really, since the Southern Baptist Convention in 1845. And so we've always had this... Um, cooperative coexistence. Now, obviously, in the past 30 years or so, with the Founders Movement, with Southern Seminary, with the rise of Together for the Gospel, with Acts 29, with Nine Marks Ministries, 
um, with a lot of our institutions becoming uh, led by Calvinist leaders such as David Platt at the International Mission Board and other things, uh, this issue has come to a head. There seems to be, in the Southern Baptist Convention right now, a political majority of Calvinists holding positions, whereas there is a traditionalist minority in, the, in positions of leadership, but the majority, what I'm told, of Southern Baptist churches probably subscribe to the traditionalist theology as opposed to Calvinism. Now, is there empirical evidence for that? Uh, we've got some LifeWay studies. We've got some surveys from pastors. At the, at the end of the day, we, we really don't know. I think it's more just what your own opinion is on the matter. But I'm not sure what really precipitated Eric Hankins to launch this statement at such a time as this. I don't know the things behind the scenes, and so all I need to do is, is look at the statement itself. I don't want to impugn any motives. I don't want to say what he did was wrong. Uh, I think he makes some bold assertions. I think he calls for some very bold moves. And so we're just going to interact with the document. So here's his thesis. Quote, I submit the following proposal for what's next for your consideration as an act of fidelity to all the SBC stands for, we must constantly advocate for traditionalism as a strategy of loyal opposition to the rise of Calvinism in the SBC and call upon all non-Calvinist pastors and lay people to do the same. That's his assertion. That's his thesis. That's his call to action, loyal opposition, to advocate strongly, stridently, to call people to action, to advocate for traditionalism in loyal opposition to the rise of Calvinism. Obviously, the traditional Southern Baptists see the rise of Calvinism as a threat. It's very clear in the, the verbiage and wording that's used in this document. They see it as a threat. They see Southern Seminary and Southeastern Seminary and Midwestern Seminary cranking out these young pastors and ministers who are influenced by Calvinistic soteriology, and, and they are, not surprisingly, alarmed. And so what they're calling is really a, a shot across the bow to say, listen, we're no longer going to sit back and let Calvinism take its sway, we need to be vocal, we need to be political involved in, the, in getting involved in the Southern Baptist Convention, we need to be theological, we need to do this with love and respect. I don't think they're, they're saying be mean about it by any stretch of the imagination. They're just saying, hey, all hands on deck, let's advocate, let's go out there and espouse traditionalism because it's getting lost in the mix of the rise of Calvinism, and this has been, quote-unquote, our theology for the past 50 years. Now, we can argue whether how traditional their theology is versus the founders in 1845, but I've done you know, previous podcasts that really their, their view is only maybe 40, 50 years old. So he says this, So in the spirit of fair play, it's time for all those in the SBC who are not Calvinists to voice their opposition to Calvinism as an act of loyalty to the SBC. Opposition to Calvinism as an act of loyalty to the SBC. In other words, if you are a Calvinist, you may be in danger of being disloyal to the SBC. 
It's an issue of loyalty. And he argues that Calvinists construct their soteriology on a foundation of philosophical determinism. Since God meticulously determines everything that happens such that there is no contingency, that must include each person's eternal destiny. Everything else about Calvinist soteriology flows from this. So when they use words like election, love, all, freedom, and faith, they mean something fundamentally different from what I mean when I use these words. It does no good for Southern Baptists to say we believe basically the same things about soteriology. We mean very different things. And I would agree with that statement. We do mean very different things. Now, when it comes to the gospel... I believe we are talking about the same thing. I'm not one of those Calvinists that say Calvinism is the gospel. I'd say the gospel is the good news of the historical event of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his ascension back up to heaven, his session at the right hand of the Father, and his return to make all things new in the new heavens and the new earth, and the call for all people everywhere to repent and believe in Jesus Christ alone as their Lord and Savior. So it's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I think we all agree upon that. The issue is not the gospel per se. The issue is what are the underpinning foundational theological assumptions, suppositions, assertions, and premises that undergird the gospel. In other words, what do we believe about how a person is saved or God's plan of salvation? And so they will accuse us of being philosophical determinists where we would say, no, we're not philosophical determinists we see compatibilism and determinism in the scriptures, and thus we come with our viewpoint from the scriptures. We see God's sovereign decree over all things. We see his meticulous sovereignty determining all things that happen. And we do see human freedom occurring. And we see those coming together, and we call it compatibilism because the scripture asserts that. It's not a philosophical construct for us as Calvinists. We come to this from the scriptures. And of course, I've done previous podcasts on that, so I'm not going to go back and rehash old material. You can go back and listen to that. I'm dealing specifically with this document. And I've been clear on this. I've, I've been clear. I'm not one of these Calvinists that's hidden that we, have, that, we, that, that we all basically believe the same thing. We don't believe the same thing. It's foolish to think that we believe the same thing. I mean, you don't have to go to a Facebook group or to a blog or to, to any type of, of online social media construct to see that there are fundamental differences and, and people get really riled up over these differences. This is a statement that I think is a shot across the bow that was probably the strongest statement, one of the strongest statements in the, the, the document. Here's what he said. Calvinism suffers from massive exegetical, theological, and philosophical problems that translate into massive problems in faith and practice. He says, Calvinism impugns the character of God. It makes nonsense of the biblical assertion that God loves everyone, that Christ died for the sins of everyone, and that anyone can be saved. 
It obliterates any concept of a well-meant offer of the gospel. It offers no answer to the problem of evil except that God is the cause. It offers either soft-headed incoherence or cold-hearted coherence. In other words, we as Calvinists worship a different God. It's basically what he's saying. Now, he did not come out and say that, and maybe he would assert something different, but his statements there are pretty strong. Some strong assertions. And it starts with the assumption that I think a lot of these traditionalists start with is that God's primary character, his overriding character, his chief characteristic is love. And yes, God is love. But God is also holy. God is sovereign. God is majestic. And they start with the premise that God is bound to love all people in the same way and that there is no particular election of certain individuals to be saved or not saved. And they deny God's sovereign decree. They will look at this idea of individual election to salvation and individual election to reprobation and they struggle with that they're going to have a corporate view of election or they're going to have more of a foreseen faith what does it mean when they say anyone can be saved what they mean is that there's no total inability that is preventing somebody in spiritual deadness from believing the gospel, there's no need for sovereign regeneration to make a person come to, to life. What they mean is, is that when the gospel is presented to a person, they have the innate ability to respond to God's appeal to be saved, and they can either repent and believe, or they cannot. It's as simple as that. They have libertarian free will to be saved. But here's the issue that oftentimes gets muddled in this discussion. What about those that have never heard? Can they be saved? Can anybody be saved? What about those that have never heard? Um, the Founders blog, the Founders movement, has done a pretty good job in responding pretty rapidly uh, to this document. So I'd encourage you to go to the Founders website and look at this. And this is from the um, Richard Blaylock's article in the Founders Journal from 2016, fall of 2016. So I'm going to give a quote from that journal. He says this, Such a high view of God's sovereignty accords with the scriptures and leads by logical necessity to the doctrine of reprobation. If God is sovereign over all things, including all human choices, then he is sovereign over the choice to reject the gospel. Furthermore, if God is sovereign over all the affairs of men, then he's sovereign over where the gospel is preached. Thus, if the gospel must be believed in order for one to be saved, which it must, and God decides where the gospel will be proclaimed, which he does, Acts 16, 6-10, then God is sovereign over where salvation is even made available. So we as Calvinists would say, even in God's decree, he ordains the means by which the gospel is going to get to people. And we look empirically at history, just the evidence, and say, there's been times in history, and there are places in history, and there are places right now where there is no gospel. 
there is no missionary. And God and his sovereignty has ordained, for some reasons that we don't know, that the gospel is not given to those people. And so they don't even have an opportunity to hear the gospel in order to repent and believe. So can anyone be saved? Well, what about those that have never heard? Now, some of these more Arminian, and I'm not sure if traditional Southern Baptists would go this far, but they are really fond of Jerry Walls. And I did a whole podcast on Jerry Walls. I do not think Jerry Walls is a good exegete. I actually think Jerry Walls is a liberal. He's a liberal Arminian. And I'll just come right out and say that. In his book, Why I'm Not a Calvinist, he quotes C.S. Lewis. And there's a lot of good things that C.S. Lewis wrote, but there's a lot of good things that C.S. Lewis wrote that we would consider almost heretical. Uh, from C.S. Lewis's book, God in the Dock, this is a quote from C.S. Lewis, quote, It should be pointed out that though salvation is through Jesus, we need not conclude that he cannot save those who have not explicitly accepted him in this life. In other words, Lewis gives opportunity for a person to have unconscious faith in Christ and never trust him in this life and still be saved. Some type of post-mortem salvation, I really don't know. Walls himself, Jerry Walls, says this in the book, quote, The grace made available by Christ is extended to everyone through the work of the Holy Spirit, even if they live in times and places where the gospel is not explicitly preached. The grace is made available. How is that grace made available? Is it through general revelation? He does believe in a kind of non-Catholic purgatory, this whole idea of post-mortem opportunity to be saved. So there's some strong assertions there about Calvinism impugning the character of God. It's, it's nonsense. It obliterates the concept of the well-meant offer. It has no answer to the problem of, of evil. And that basically we're cold-hearted. We have a coherent system that's cold-hearted. We're cold-hearted Calvinists that just believe that, you know, because God has ordained some people to heaven and some people to hell, that we're just, you know, chosen, frozen, cold Calvinists that don't care about evangelism, don't care about missions. We don't pray for lost people. Uh, we've got this cold, calculated, philosophical determinism that influences everything that we do. And if that, that whole mindset is challenged, then that the stack of cards comes trembling down, the house of cards comes down, and, and Calvinism is obliterated because that's the central theme of our viewpoint. And if you, you know, if you poke at determinism and, 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 and take down philosophical determinism, we don't have a leg to stand upon. He also goes on to say this, Calvinism has a history of deleterious effects on evangelism and missions and promotes unparalleled theological snobbery and querulousness. That's an assertion that needs to be proven. I do not like when people make bold assertions and do not give any type of documentation. You know, one of the things that we had to do when I was doing my doctoral thesis at Southern was you, you could not make any claim or any assertion without backing it up with either biblical evidence or some type of, of substantia, substantiated evidence. And so here's a claim. Unparalleled theological snobbery. Deleterious effects on missions and evangelism. Well, give us an example. Prove it. How, how, is this, how has this happened? 
Can you prove this? Because I would argue just the opposite. I would say that the altar call system and the easy believism and the whole Arminian scheme of pragmatism has had whatever the word is, deleterious effects on, on missions and evangelism. Think about those who were Reformed or Calvinistic in their theology that were strong in missions and evangelism. John Calvin himself sent missionaries from Geneva into France as far as away as to Brazil. And most of these young men died as martyrs. David Brainerd, a missionary to the American Indians in the 1700s, um, he was you know, discipled by Jonathan Edwards. He was a Calvinist. Jonathan Edwards himself, uh, the preacher of the first great awakening, he was a missionary to the Indians. George Whitfield, the great preacher of the first great awakening, journeyed across the Atlantic Ocean 13 times, preached over 18,000 sermons. William Carey from England, he's the father of, of uh, the, considered the father of modern missions. He was a missionary to India, a strong Calvinist. You've got Robert Moffat, the first missionary to reach the interior of Africa with the gospel. You've got David Livingstone, arguably the most famous missionary to the continent of Africa. He was a strong Calvinist. Robert Morrison, the first Protestant missionary to China, first to translate the Bible into Chinese. Adoniram Judson, the famous missionary to Burma, translated the Bible into Burmese, established multiple Baptist churches in, in Burma. Lottie Moon, if you're Southern Baptist, every Christmas you celebrate the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. She was a strong Calvinist, and we have our own Southern Baptist missions named after her. Charles Simeon, a pastor of Holy Trinity Church in England, founded the Church Missionary Society, and he was instrumental in leading um, more than 9,000 missionaries into the world. Charles Spurgeon. I mean, he talk about somebody who's evangelistic and a Calvinist. A modern day, John Stott, um, the great evangelical leader of the 20th century. He was the influential leader um, establishing the Lausanne Covenant, which promoted worldwide evangelism. Francis Schaeffer, also a Calvinist. Uh, James Kennedy, the founder of Evangelism Explosion, uh, used throughout the, the 80s and 90s to, to lead many people to Christ. He's a strong Calvinist. And even, you know, John Piper mission. So, you can list off strong Calvinistic leaders throughout history who've had a major impact on missions. And so to make a bold assertion like that, uh, I think, is not really fair. Now, he talks about the traditional statement, Article 2, which is the denial of Adam's sin resulting in the incapacitation of free will, the whole thing of imputed guilt, original sin, um, all of those types of things, and he has an argument about how sometimes they're, they're labeled semi-Pelagian. But here's what he said, which I found very curious. He says, I have yet to read a single sustained demonstration from Scripture that rules out this denial. Not one. Why? Because the Reformed idea that Adam's sin ended libertarian freedom for the rest of us is not a biblical idea. It flows from Augustine's commitment to determinism, his complete misunderstanding of Romans in general, and Romans 9 in particular, and his complete botching of the exegesis of Romans 5. Why should I care what Augustine thinks anyway? Another bold assertion. I don't know what scholarship he's not looking at but I can give you a list of some sustained, demonstrated scriptural arguments from Romans chapter 5 that are based upon biblical exegesis, not on Augustine. Tom Schreiner, 
professor of New Testament Greek at Southern Seminary, has contributed a chapter in a book called Adam, the Fall, and Original Sin, Theological, Biblical, and Scientific Perspectives. He's got a chapter there called Original Sin and Original Death in Romans 5. Probably the top New Testament Southern Baptist scholar that we have right now has dealt explicitly with Romans chapter 5. The Founders Journal from so a couple of articles from 2016 dealt extensively with these from an exegetical viewpoint. The book, Whomever He Wills, has come out. I mean, so I don't know what he means by there's not been a sustained argument from scriptures. It's really weird that he would say that. He also says philosophers with Baptist connections like William Lane Craig, Jeremy Evans, and Jerry Walls are demonstrating that the determinism of Calvinism is irredeemably flawed and that there are robust alternatives to it that allow for the strongest views of God's sovereignty and legitimate views of human freedom. Now, I would not want to mention William Lane Craig or Jerry Walls as robust theologians. William Lane Craig is a Molinist. And you can go to Dr. James White's interaction with his viewpoints. I've done a whole podcast on Jerry Walls. I would not, I would not label or lift these two up as, as robust theologians that are somehow dismantling um, Calvinism. Now here's the statement that I was shocked was in his statement. And I'm not sure what I would have to sit down with him and understand his view of this. But here's what he said. The Reformed idea that God chooses some individuals and not others for salvation has no, I repeat, no biblical support. Now, I'm assuming he holds to the corporate view of election. And I've done a whole podcast on that. It comes more from Karl Barth, imported to Herschel Hobbes, who made it famous in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, this corporate view of election. Whereas Arminians and Calvinists do see individual election to salvation. I want to interact extensively with Tom Askell's um, article that just came out um, on the 6th of July, just last week, on the Founders blog. And this is what he wrote. The, the title of the blog is, No Biblical Support for Unconditional Election? Question mark. So let's just interact with his response, because I think it's important to see how Southern Baptist Calvinists have responded to this statement. He says this, Consequently, when a person claims that the Reformed idea that God chooses some individuals and not others for salvation has no, I repeat, no biblical support, it is hard to take him seriously. Gratuitous, dismissive assertions have no place in serious theological conversations. Unfortunately, when a respected person makes such a claim, some will be tempted to take him at his word. Now, one of the things that I, and maybe he didn't have time to mention this in his speech, but when he put it in writing, he could have maybe added some more clarity. But I think the thing that I have a problem with, I don't have a problem with Eric Hankins giving the speech. I don't have a problem with the things um, of him articulating his views and, and promoting um, traditionalism. I, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I do have a problem with the bold assertions without any, any explanation. Okay, he makes a bold assertion about a denial of unconditional election, and he doesn't argue what his view is. Are you a foreseen faith Arminian? 
Are you corporate election? What, you can't just you know, make this bold statement, there's no, I repeat, no biblical support, and then not give your position. And I think oftentimes the traditionalists are coming from defense. They're saying what they don't believe. They're always defending what they don't believe in, and they don't offer a positive exegesis on what they do believe. Tell us what you do believe. Let's just look at some passages of Scripture, and this is from Tom Askell. He, he gave these passages of Scripture that do teach that God chooses some individuals and not others to salvation. Matthew 11, 25-27. At that time, Jesus declared, Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So, does that not mean that there are some that will never know the Father unless Jesus chooses to reveal them to the Father, and Jesus has the sovereign right over whom He's going to choose to do that? John 6.37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. We've dealt extensively with John chapter 6, so I'm not going to go over that. You can listen to previous podcasts on that, but the Father has given to Jesus a people, and they will definitely come. You've got the high priestly prayer in John 17 where Jesus is talking about those whom the Father has given him and how um, he's not praying for them, but he's praying for those that he's given him out of the world. Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That is a clear passage of Scripture. What comes first, believing or being appointed? You were appointed, you were chosen, you were predestined to eternal life, by God in eternity past, and then in time you believed. How many believed? Only those that were appointed to eternal life. I don't, I'm going to talk about Romans 9 because my last podcast dealt with Romans 9, how I believe it is individual salvation and reprobation of Jacob and Esau and of individuals prepared for destruction and individuals prepared for, for mercy, vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13-14, but we are always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God chose you. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And what Tom Askell says, in light of these clear statements of Scripture, it's no wonder that the abstract of principles of 1858, the first confession of faith produced by Southern Baptists, affirms unconditional election in Article 5. Quote, election is God's eternal choice of some persons unto everlasting life, not because of foreseen merit in them, but of his mere mercy in Christ, in consequence of which choice they are called, justified, and glorified. 
So for him to say there's no biblical support for individual election, don't just make that assertion and say, I repeat, there's no biblical support. And I know he's done this in other places. I know he's written in other places, and I know that he's, he, he's done that, and you can link to other sermons he's preached. But I think for the purpose of this document, if it's going to be circulated, if it's a call to arms, if it's a, if it's a call for loyal opposition, and you're going to make these bold statements, I think it would be well for Eric Hankins to go back and add some things into the statement, republish it, and tell us positively what your view of election is, not just that there's no biblical support. Now, one of the other statements that was curious to me is he said, we're in the driver's seat in terms of theological scholarship, and we need to start acting like it, speaking like it, and writing like it. Positively, we need to develop our soteriological convictions in a coherent system that is no longer beholden to the mistakes of Augustinian Calvinist synthesis. Negatively, we must demand that Southern Baptist Calvinists own their own system. No more punning to paradox, no more appealing to mystery, no more reformed rhetoric and linguistic disingenuity, no more whining about misrepresentation. It's time for Southern Baptist Calvinists to give straight answers on hard questions, and a, a loyal and vocal engagement on these issues must be pressed. Amen. I've been clear on this. I'm not sure what Calvinist he's been talking to. When I listened to his um, interview with Dr. Leighton Flowers, I was confused because he kept talking about these Calvinists that would always appeal to Augustine and Calvin and Luther, and they would never appeal to the scriptures, and they would always go back to um, you know, the Council of Orange. I, I don't do that. I, I've never appealed to Augustine or Calvin as authoritative. I may quote them from time to time, but I always appeal to the scriptures. I don't, I don't know of any Calvinists who are stridently tied to Augustine or Calvin or John Piper or John MacArthur that they would elevate these men's teaching over scripture. Are we being honest? Here's what he says. On Calvinist principles, God could have foreordained the salvation of all just as easily, just as righteously, as he foreordained the salvation of only some. Some. What else can such an act be called except evil? This is not a misrepresentation of Calvinism. I see no way around this implication. If there is one, Southern Baptists are going to need to hear it. Now, this is a very strong statement. Basically, what he's saying is if you believe in unconditional election, then you believe that God has done something evil. God has determined something that is actually evil in not ordaining some to eternal life and passing over others. And when are we going to own up to our views about this? I don't know of many Calvinists that hide our views. We, we, I don't appeal to paradox. I don't appeal to mystery. I, I mean, the question is, are we, are we not somehow being honest? Are we, are we hiding our determinism? Are we hiding our compatibilism? How are we hiding this? Uh, let me just ask, is Mark Dever hiding it? Tom Askell hiding it? Matt Chandler? David Platt? Al Mohler? You know, some key Southern Baptist Calvinists, are, are they hiding it? Now, there may be some young seminary students that are hiding it because they want to get hired at a church, and we'll talk about that a little bit later because he addresses that, but I don't know how, how much Calvinists are really hiding what they believe, especially when they subscribe to the Second London Baptist Confession. I mean, D.A. Carson's got a book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God where he just flat out talks about how God loves people in different ways. The Founder's Journal, the Founder's Blog, I mean, they, they're addressing these issues with no holds barred. 
Bruce Ware, professor of systematic theology at Southern, has contributed a chapter um, called Divine Election to Salvation in the book Perspectives on Election, Five Views. He addresses it quite openly. So I don't think that Calvinists are being um, evasive. They're appealing to mystery. They're, they're hiding what they believe because they're embarrassed. And if they really said what they believe, then people wouldn't believe it. I think we've been very clear on unconditional election and reprobation. Our confessions say this. The Abstracted Principles discusses it. The Second London Baptist Confession. We're not hiding these things. Now, maybe some are. But, but this whole charge that God is evil, if he could have foreordained the salvation of all just as easily, but he foreordained the salvation of only some. What else can we say that such an act is evil? Okay. How does this not answer the apparent evil of an Arminian system? If God, in Arminianism, foresees, looks down the corridors of time, who will reject him and who will accept him, and God looks down and sees somebody rejecting him, why does God not intervene to save them when he could? Now, the answer that the Arminian gives is that God will not violate their free will. Even if God foresees someone rejecting Christ, he's not going to intervene to violate their free will. He, he could, he has the power to, but he's not. And so, does not God's decision to let them go ahead and reject Christ and not intervene to save, could that not be just as evil? If God could do it, but he doesn't? As God electing some and not others? So either system is stuck with having God have the power to save all if he wanted to, but not deciding to. See, both views believe God has the power to save if he wanted to. The answer in Calvinism is that God decides not to save all because of his sovereign decree, not to save all, for his own purpose and his will. Arminianism answers the question by appealing to the fact that God chooses not to save all because he will not violate the libertarian free will of his creatures. He allows them to go ahead and reject him when he could intervene otherwise to save them. Now, they probably have a corporate view of election that's totally different, but, but assert that. Here's one of the things he said. He talks about a way to deal with things theologically, but also to deal with things confessionally. And he aims directly at the abstracted principles. If you don't know what the abstracted principles are, the abstracted principles was the first official docu you know, doc uh, doctrinal statement of Southern Baptists that has been adopted for, for, since Southern, ba Southern Seminary, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, since their inception. And it is still their statement of faith that professors have to sign to be in accord with it. And it is clearly at least a four-point Calvinistic document. Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina, it's also in their charter that their professors have to sign that they are in agreement with that. So it's not just the Baptist faith and message. There's also the abstracted principles, which is a Calvinistic document that guides those two seminaries. And this is what Eric Hankins says, quote, I believe we need to call for the removal of the abstracted principles as the confessional statement of Southern and Southeastern. It has never made sense to me why entities that exist because of this cooperative program have additional and alternative confessions to the Baptist faith and message. 
It's a source of confusion and disunity. Moreover, the abstract functions at those schools to promote Calvinism and blunt traditionalism. Now, this is a very bold move. It's a bold assertion. It's a bold move. And let me tell you why it probably will not happen. The only way this will happen is with the removal of Al Mohler as president of Southern and the removal of Danny Aiken as the president of Southeastern and a whole new set of trustees. Now, you need to understand how the trustee system works in the Southern Baptist Convention if you're not Southern Baptist. I've been a trustee. I was a trustee for what used to be called Golden Gate Baptist Theological Center. But it's now Gateway. I was a trustee. So I know you're, you're, you're elected, nominate, you're nominated by your state convention. And then you go and your name is presented on a slate before the committee on committees who then actually nominate you to be voted on at the annual meeting. And so basically it's a slate of names that people vote on at the annual meeting that become trustees. And the trustees meet about twice or three times a year at the seminary where they do business and they help the leaders of the seminary function. And so everything that's tied to Southern and to Southeastern is based upon the trustee system. So for them to get rid of, the Southern Baptist Convention can't just come and say, you've got to get rid of the abstracted principles. The trustees would actually have to vote to remove that as individual trustees of each entity. And, and I don't think that's going to happen. As long as Al Mohler and Danny Aiken, we can have those discussions, but unless a whole new slate of trustees, and there's a lot of trustees on these these boards. I mean, we're talking maybe 50, 60 trustees at each institution that you're going to have to replace to get people on there that would say, okay, yeah, we, we, we want to get rid of the abstracted principles. So I think that's a... a, a Maybe he did that to start the discussion, obviously, um, because obviously the abstracted principles is a Calvinistic document. But he makes the assertion that it's used at these schools to promote Calvinism and blunt traditionalism, which may or may not be true. I don't know. Um, I think that the reality that we have in our convention right now with seminaries is this. It's just the reality. And I, and I know this pretty well because I've got connections at a lot of these seminaries. I got my doctorate at Southern. Southern is the flagship Calvinistic seminary. Okay? A lot of people are going to Southeastern specifically because they're focused on missions. They've got a really great faculty there. Danny Aiken is a, is a great leader. It leans heavily Calvinistic. Okay? Jason Allen, he's the new president at Midwestern in Kansas City. A lot of people are flocking there. My nephew, or my, not my nephew, my cousin just graduated with his MDiv from there. And Jason Allen was a protege of Al Mohler. I've read his doctoral dissertation because he had the same faculty supervisor that I did, and I was encouraged to read that to help me in my dissertation. And he is a Calvinist, and so Midwestern is moving Calvinistically. So you've got three, at least one dominant Southern, one highly Calvinistic Southeastern, and one that's probably moving heavily Calvinistic Midwestern. Okay, Golden Gates or Gateway is an animal all into itself. I am a graduate of Golden Gate, of Gateway. They've got Calvinist and non-Calvinist. Um, they tend to stay out of the fray because they're out on the West Coast and out here in the Pioneer area and, and focus more on church planning and things like that. Don't get into a lot of those theological discussions. So what does that leave you with? Southwestern and New Orleans. 
which are the two flagship traditionalist colleges because of Paige Patterson at Southwestern and, and Chuck Kelly at New Orleans. And so right now you've got parity in the seminaries, which I think is good. If you want to go to a Calvinist seminary, go to Southern. If you don't, go to Southwestern. Um, I know he's calling for diversity, but we have diversity in that we have six seminaries to choose from and go with which flavor you like the best. And again, it, it all boils down to the president of the seminary and the trustees. Now, one thing that he said that I do agree with is he said, quote, Moreover, I think it's time we quit insisting on the inviolability of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. We need to take a look especially at the articles on man and salvation, which could benefit from some clearer language so that our conventional commitment to God's love for every person, Christ's death for the sins of every person, and the savability of every person is crystal clear. The article on man to me is stone cold on the issue of libertarian freedom, which it calls freedom of choice. That is not what Calvinists think freedom is, and they know it. Moreover, no Calvinist would ever describe the effects of the fall as that of inheriting a nature and environment inclined toward evil that way as well. I agree with him on this. The Baptist faith and message is a big tent, middle of the road, innocuous document. It's written to make everybody somewhat happy, but it's not clear and precise. And I think it's purposely written that way so that you can have a big tent. You can have Calvinist affirmant. You can have traditionalist affirmant. I don't know if an Arminian could, but it's a big enough tent. It, it's an innocuous um, document that makes everybody happy. And for the longest time, it's existed that way. And I think it's purposely written as a denominational document to unite a large denomination under a big tent. But for us as a local church, we are not content with the ambiguity and the innocuous nature of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. So we are precisely for that reason changing our doctrinal statement. Okay, we're in the process of doing that as elders. I'm going to vote on that this fall with our church. Many are adopting the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. So I think that really the way it should work is that individual churches under the autonomy of the local church have the freedom to believe whatever doctrinal statement they want, but he wants a more narrow or more traditionalist type of language to go into the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which I think that right there is going to be the, 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 the thing that would split the convention. The getting rid of the abstract of principles, I don't think that's going to happen because that's a trustee issue at, at individual seminaries. But we have changed our doctrinal statement over the years. The 1963 was used by the liberals in the 80s, 70s, 80s, and 90s to promote this whole idea of soul competency and priesthood of the believers and, and, and to downplay inerrancy to where that whole battle for the conservative resurgence was fought in the 80s and the, in the 90s to where the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 came out and it was voted on by our annual convention and it's, it's the binding document now. It's the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. I remember after it was adopted going to a state convention here in Colorado where the state convention was basically saying that we wanted to change our constitution in the state convention of Colorado Baptist to adopt the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. And it caused some issues because there were some 63 churches that didn't want that to happen. And, and, and as I say in my family, all Helsinki broke loose because of the, the issues that were going on there. And so I think if you start... 
tinkering with the Baptist faith and message. There are going to be, if it goes overtly traditionalist, there are going to be so many Calvinists that are going to be like, this is, this, I can't do this. If it goes too Calvinistic, there are going to be some traditionalists that are going to have heart attacks over this. So I think if the Baptist faith and message goes one way or the other, if it goes more Calvinistic, you're going to see a major, major battle. I mean, I think if it goes more traditionalist, the Calvinists are just going to be like, okay, go do whatever you want. We're going to have our own confessions of faith. We're not, it's not that big of a deal. That, that's just my prediction. If the, if, the, if the Baptist faith and message moves more traditionalist, most Calvinistic churches will be like, okay, we'll just have the second London Baptist confession. We can, we can agree with some of the things in the Baptist faith and message. Not a big deal. We still give the cooperative program. We're still going to, going to be part of things. It's not that big of a deal. That, that's just my prediction. If the Baptist faith and message goes more Calvinistic, that's going to be a huge deal. That's going to be a fight. The traditionalists are not going to let that happen. So he's bringing up some very provocative things here that he says, I don't want to split the convention, but these types of things are things that could split the convention. He also says this. Well, he makes an interesting statement. He does. He says, um, the result is that a fair reading of the Baptist faith and message shows it to be a combination of libertarianism and compatibilism. This is logically incoherent and really needs to be straightened out so that Southern Baptists can state with crystal clarity that God loves every person salvifically, that Christ died for the sins of every person, and that anyone can be saved. What he's basically saying is that we need to move the Baptist faith and message to be more like the traditional statement. It needs to be crystal clear that we are traditionalist, and we need to take any of the verbiage that's Calvinistic out of it, any of the compatibilistic things out of it. We need to move it to be more libertarianism. That's what he's arguing. Now, finally, he argues that there needs to be some strategies for political engagement. And this is not political in a bad way. This is just getting involved in the life of the convention, especially when it comes to the seminaries and cooperative program funding. He says this, of the seminary students that do choose Calvinism, we want to know that they have been taught not to push it at churches that they'll serve. They need to be taught to have an appreciation for traditionalist soteriology that they will cultivate at their churches. That, that's logically incoherent. If you're a Calvinist and you go to a traditionalist church, why would you push traditionalism you don't want to split churches. I understand that. But what if the convictions that this pastor has is based upon Scripture? They need to be up front with those churches they serve, and they don't need to hide their Calvinism. That is a problem. Uh, there's some secret agent Calvinists who will use some coded wording when they go before a pastor search committee because they want to get a job, they want to get in a church, they, they, they're, they're nine marks, we're going to go reform this church, I just got this brand new seminary degree, I'm coming out of Southern with guns blazing, and we're going to reform this church, and all these traditionalists, we're going to, we're going to reform in the first week, and I'm going to preach tulip from the, from the pulpit, and we're going to get everybody converted to Calvinism in the first month. You're going to split that church, okay? When I came to Emmanuel 12 years ago with the pastor search committee, we had a phone interview. They asked me all the theological questions, all the ministry-related questions, family questions. They, they, they got to the end and said, do you have any questions for us? And I was very upfront. I said this, do you have a problem with your next pastor being a five-point 
Calvinist. I just laid my cards on the table. I didn't hide anything. My philosophy is if God's in it and it's, and it's his will, better to be open and up front and lay your cards on the table and, and let the chips fall where they may under his God and sovereignty than to hide it. And, they, and so we, we, we um, discussed that and it wasn't an issue. They'd had that in their history. It wasn't a problem. They called me. I wore it on my sleeves. But I didn't come in preaching tulip. I didn't come in. I told them it will come out in my preaching and my teaching because of the exegesis of Scripture. So when you exposit Scripture, when you go through expositional preaching, when you teach exegetically, you cannot expect someone who holds to these convictions because they've come to these convictions from the Scriptures to change those convictions when they stand up and preach and teach. I just think you can't, it's hard to do that. So where the issue needs to happen is on the front end, where these young Calvinist preacher boys need to be honest and up front and not divisive. And, and that, that does bother me because there are good, godly saints who are traditionalists. And they are never going to buy Calvinism, but they're going to pay your salary. And they're going to give to the cooperative program. And they are going to support Lottie Moon. And they're going to love you. But they may never believe in irresistible grace or limited atonement. And so it takes a little bit of honest, not a little bit, a lot of honesty, to stand before pastor search committees and be honest. And don't hide your words. I believe the doctrines of grace. Well, most pastor search committees are going to, when you say grace, they're going to, oh yeah, we believe in grace too. No, you need to be very specific and say, if I had to label myself historically or where things are right now, I am this. I am a five-point Calvinist. Here's what it means. And then you unpack that. Don't hide yourself. Oh. Yeah, we. he says, we don't want Calvinism advocated at our CP-funded entities. We don't want Calvinism advocated at our CP-funded entities. Now, CP-funded entities are the seminaries. It's the International Mission Board. It's the North American Mission Board. So, do we not want tradition... So, is he saying we want traditionalism advocated at these? Because what's always been advocated or should be advocated at the entities, especially the, the North American Mission Board and the International Mission Board, is the Baptist faith and message. And again, that goes back to his argument that that's, it's too innocuous. But he's basically saying that Calvinism should not be advocated at any CP-funded entity. Any entity that gets cooperative program dollars, th th they should not talk about Calvinism. It should not be advocated. It, it should not be accepted? I don't know. It's almost like I don't want to root out Calvinists within the convention, but I really do. It's almost what he's vaguely saying. Now, again, I don't want to impute, impute his motives. I've never had a discussion with Eric Hankins. I've never talked with him. I've had interactions with, obviously, Leighton Flowers and Rick Patrick and Adam Harwood and Braxton Hunter and others in that movement, and I appreciate the times that we've got to talk and interact, and I've never interacted with Eric Hankins, so I don't know his motives. I just, I'm just dealing with the language that he's using here. And the language is strong. The language is strident. The word is opposition. That's not a, um, that's not a, a soft word. That's, 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 that, that's a, a, almost a, a militant word, opposition. We're we going to loyally oppose 
Calvinism in the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, I don't know what the fallout's going to be from this document. It's already generating a lot of um, heat, especially at some local Baptist colleges and other places around the country. I don't know what the future holds. Um, I think that the Calvinists, in my opinion, aren't really out there militantly advocating Calvinism the way that maybe it's perceived that they are. I think that you just have a lot of seminaries that are cranking out young seminarians, and it's kind of becoming the culture of our convention through that process. Okay, so with David Platt at the head of IMB, it's going to trickle down through IMB. With Southern and Southeastern being the two largest seminaries with more graduates, and a lot of them going to the mission field, a lot of them coming pastors, it's, it's taken about a 20 to 30 year shift here in the Calvinization, I guess you'd say, of the denomination. And these traditionalists know that. They know that it's a matter of time. If the trend happens the way it is, it's going to be taken over in all areas in, in, in a few years. And so they're calling the battle cry right now to stop it, to oppose it, because they see themselves losing out. And I don't know what that means, because it makes it sound like, hey, let's all get along. We've always coexisted. Let's do that. But and then in the same breath, they're like, well, we don't want to split and we want to make sure that we advocate for traditionalism, but we're going to say all these assertions about how bad Calvinist is, and we want you to get rid of your doctrinal statements, and we don't want anything advocated for Calvinism. It, it, it was a bold statement. We'll see how prolific it becomes as it is circulated. We'll see if it dies down. I'm not sure if it will. Um, it may just be more fuel for the fire. Um, I pray for us that we would be unified. Again, I've said this, we have a lot more in common than we, than we have differences, but we do have distinct differences. And if anything, this gets the discussion going about how we're going to move forward as a denomination with these two main camps and the differences. It'll be interesting to see how it unfolds at the local church level, at the state convention, associational, all the way up to the entities and, the, and all the things that happen in between. And so um, I would just say be in prayer Stay engaged. Make sure that you don't believe everything that you read. Uh, be quick to, to be um, accepting. Be quick to um, love and not to judge motives. Um, examine everything. Don't lash out through social media and get all riled up. Be patient. Be wise. God is sovereign over this. And so as a good Calvinist, I believe God ordains everything that comes to pass, so whatever does end up happening, it's going to be His will anyway. And so we just need to be vigilant, we need to be loving, we need to be cooperative, uh, we need to be understanding, we need to have good dialogue. And so hopefully that is what the future of the Southern Baptist Convention is. And so I hope that you have benefited from this. Um, I would like to hear your feedback on this. Some of you have contacted me already about this. We've had some good discussions. Um, it is an issue that is going to be um, near, near and dear to, to Southern Baptist hearts here in the, in the near future. And so um, pay attention to what happens if you're involved in our denomination. Well, I thank you for listening to this podcast. This is really dealing more with in-house topics related to the Southern Baptist Convention, but um, I know that many of my listeners may not be Southern Baptist, but it may be of interest to you. And so until next time, 
I'm not sure what our next topic will be. If you've got a good topic, maybe you can email me. Go to seancole.net. There's my contact information. And we can talk about something that you may have on your mind that you want addressed in a future podcast. You can go to iTunes, give us a review and rating. We'd love to have a, a positive review there. And so until next time, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.